0: It's good to see everybody tonight. We are the Charlotte family, Colonial America Living History Missionaries to the United States. That's a mouthful. What, what does that mean? Well, <clears throat> basically we go around the country dressed in period costume and I preach about America's Christian foundations and we'll t- share more about that with you tonight. But just by way of introduction, my name is Dan Charlin. This is my lovely wife, Jennifer, and our three sons, Joseph, Jeremy, and Ethan. And in September of 2013, three years ago this month, God called us out from Vermont, the most spiritually dark state in the nation. And like Vermont, America needs a third great awakening. So we invite American Christians to give themselves fully to Christ and we invite the lost to come to Christ for salvation. To date, we've ministered in scores of churches all over the country. We've seen over 600 professions of faith. Many thousands of Christians have been challenged to dedicate their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to the cause of Christ in America and beyond. Ours is a faith-based ministry. What does that mean? Well, we never went on deputation. God called us to step out on faith with no monthly support, and that's how we've been living for three years. And we live in a fifth wheel full time, and uh, it's really neat. We stepped out with no monthly support, and uh, although we have a little bit, churches have just volunteered and some individuals, we're still 90% completely by faith. So pray for us. And uh, when we started three years ago, I quit my secular job, resigned from the interim pastorate I held for a year and a half, and we sold our house in four days. And uh, if we had time, we'd give you our faith testimony about how God has met our needs miraculously for the last three years. If you've ever heard of, of George Mueller, anybody ever heard of George Mueller? Well, our family has an experience just like George Mueller's these last three years. It's pretty remarkable what God will do. Where well, our primary ministry objective is to see souls saved and Christians give themselves fully to Christ. We do this through the faith of our founding fathers presentation, which we'll be doing tonight. We also have several other Living History presentations where we share about life in the 18th century and, and add some uh, important spiritual truths from God's Word. We're also missionaries with Amazing Grace Mission. It's a soul-winning ministry. They set up booths in, in fairs and lead people to Christ. And we also have a stewardship ministry that encourages 21st century Christians to live like 1st century Christians in, in terms of stewardship. So that's a little bit about us. Now, our message tonight, <clears throat> excuse me, Faith of Our Founding Fathers. From its beginning, America was a Christian nation. Many people dispute that fact today, but the historical record is clear. It's a record we'll examine together today. We'll also see why America is no longer a Christian nation and what we can do to turn things around. We need to bring a third great awakening to America. Our enemy the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, and he's been hard at work to destroy America since our nation's founding because we have such a rich Christian heritage. We want to help you to understand that Christian heritage tonight as well as to help you to engage in the battle that's raging, to equip you in the spiritual warfare we're commanded to be fighting as Christians. So tonight we'll focus on three main concepts. We'll look at America's Christian foundations, why America's in danger, and how to see revival in the 21st century. And because we're an 18th century ministry, tonight's message is three hours long. <laughs> Actually, it's close to an hour, but I figured if I hit the three hour and then compared it with the one hour, it wouldn't be so hard to, hard to swallow there. So... Uh, but I, 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 trust you'll be blessed and, and challenged. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord God and heavenly fathers, we approach your throne of grace. We ask you to forgive us our sins. We thank you for your love, mercy, and grace. Father, thank you for this opportunity to share your word. Help me to be empty of self in your spirit. Lord, I pray would fill me and guide me. I pray for everyone present tonight, Lord, that their hearts and minds will be open to the message. You have each person here tonight. Lord is here by your, uh, uh your sovereign desire, your will. And I pray that souls would be saved, if there's any here who are lost, and that Christians would be yielded fully to Christ, that we might see a third great awakening in this nation. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, looking at America's Christian foundations, we'll start with the colonial America in general. The first settlers on the East Coast, where America began, came from England. So we'll look at our English heritage. Most of the Protestant Christians that came to America were greatly influenced by a man named John Calvin. So it's important we understand some of their beliefs so we can place our founding fathers in the proper historical cultural context. Now, as Baptists, we don't agree with everything Calvin taught, but many of his teachings did have a positive influence which shaped the origins of America, including the total depravity of human nature. In other words, man is a sinner and apart from Christ, unable to please God. Also, the priesthood of all believers, No intermediaries are necessary. Christ alone is sufficient. Remember, the Protestants had broken away from Catholicism where they had priests and bishops and popes and dead saints and Mary. All all manner of people interceding. But the Bible is clear. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Amen. Also, there was an emphasis on biblical law and also limited government. While governments are ordained of God, they're also limited in their their authority by God, something that our government today seems to have forgotten. Also, the local church government, Calvinists embrace primarily the congregational form of church government. I mentioned the emphasis on biblical law, and this is important because of the English common law, which was based largely on the Bible. Now, much of what I'm going to be sharing with you today used to be taught in public schools. But there's been a systematic removal of this information, so it's amazing how many Christians today don't know what used to be basic elementary and middle school information, and it's critical that we know this stuff. Going back to the English common law. Now now the English common law started in early England. Uh, in essence, because of the, uh, the Middle Ages, the fall of the Roman Empire, there was a lot of isolation in the towns and villages, so if there was a problem, uh, the people, if there was a conflict, they would go to the village priest and ask for his... Uh, advice, and he fortunately they were still reading the Bible back then. They would look in the Bible, find the, the solution based on biblical principles, and that would be written down. Over hundreds of years, these court precedents is what they became, formed the foundation of the English common law. Eventually they added uh, certain official documents to it. For example, in 1215 the Magna Carta, which King John was forced to sign, which, which limited the authority of the monarch and gave the uh, English citizens more of their God-given rights. And then in 1628, the Petition of Right, and then in 1689, the Bill of Rights, the English Bill of Rights. So all these things taken together form the foundation of the English common law. Now, it's important we understand that that foundation of the common law came from the Word of God. Now, at the time of the Founding Fathers, there was a man named William Blackstone who wrote a series of commentaries on the English common law. This is important for two reasons. Number one, Blackstone was a Christian, and he references the Word of God throughout these commentaries, showing how that our rights come from God. Uh, And also, by the time of the uh, Founding Fathers, Blackstone's commentaries were so popular that if you were an attorney fighting in court and you could quote Blackstone to your side, you would typically win the day in court. Also, uh, regarding Blackstone, he was quoted by the Founding Fathers more than any other reference except for two. Number one was the Word of God, and number two was another philosopher named Montesquieu who spoke about the the, uh, separation of power. So the English common law, very important, And and it, it forms the basis, really, of all the laws that we had in America. Now, we have gazillions of laws today that are not based on any morality. They're based on the whim of the power holders. And those are immoral laws. We'll talk more about that a little bit later on. But as our nation was founded, the laws are based on the morality of the Bible. Besides their English heritage, the early settlers had charters. Now, charters were permissions granted by the king to come to the New World. You couldn't just go on a whim. You had to get the king's permission. When I taught history for many years, I told my students to help you to remember why they came, remember the two Gs, God and gold. They were either coming for a profit motive or to spread the gospel. But regardless of the motive when the colonists when the charters were issued to the colonists, they always included language indicative of their devout Christian faith, and they were committing their efforts to the Lord. Listen to the the charter given to the Jamestown settlers. Now this is the first successful English settlement 1607. It was a venture of the London Company. It was a for profit venture, okay? But listen to their charter nonetheless. By the providence of almighty God to the glory of his divine majesty in propagating the Christian religion to such people as yet live in darkness and miserable ignorance of the true knowledge and worship of God. Imagine if Microsoft or Apple or IBM had a charter like that. That would be a comparable thing. There are many other charters of similar language found in them. In fact, all the colonies were founded on the religious precepts of Christianity with the word of God as their statute book. Looking at government, the colonial constitutions all reflected the Christian beliefs of the colonists. In fact, in order to hold political office in the 13 colonies, you had to be a Christian you actually had to be a Christian to hold office in the colonies. Now that's completely different than what they're saying today about this separation of church and state business. Uh, and I, I wish I had time to go into the the details of that, but suffice it to say that separation of church and state, which was a Baptist concept, as originally uh, uh, taught, meant that while Christians were expected to serve in government, in fact John Adams said we would prefer Christian for our rulers, uh, while they were expected to serve in government, the government had no right to interfere with the goings-on of the, of the church. That's what church and state separation originally meant. The 1947 Emerson case, the secular humanist Supreme Court, turned that on its head, misquoting Thomas Jefferson, and, and just completely turned it around and made it such that now Christianity couldn't have anything to do with the government. And that 19, in the, in the 1947 Emerson case was used in the early 60s to kick prayer and the Bible out of our schools. We'll talk more about that and the, and the, and the terrible consequences of it. But imagine somebody today saying that America wasn't really a Christian nation. And, and then you could say to them, well, let me share with you the oath of office for the politicians in Delaware. I do profess faith in God the Father and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, one, and the Holy Ghost, one God-blessed forevermore. And I do acknowledge the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by divine inspiration. How many of our politicians in Washington would take an oath of office like that today, amen? I suspect, to quote Ross Perot, that if they had to, there'd be a giant sucking sound as Washington would be quickly divested of its politicians. And I think that'd probably be a pretty good thing, eh, Amen. we read of similar statements in the other colonies, all of which acknowledge that God had a hand in their founding. Now looking at education in the colonies, the colonial curriculum consisted of several textbooks. Can anybody guess what the number one public school textbook was? Oh, you read my notes. Very good. Okay. The other textbooks are based on the Bible, including the most popular, which was the New England Primer. Listen to some of the things that were taught in the New England Primer. The names of the Old and New Testament books of the Bible, the Lord's Prayer, an alphabet of lessons for youth using the Bible to teach the alphabet, the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, the Westminster Assembly Shorter Catechism, and John Cotton's Spiritual Milk for American Babes. Now we're going to show you next an 18th century public school teacher using the New England Primer with her students. Now you'll notice that in uh, this little display here, that students are of a variety of ages. It's like that for two reasons. Number one, in the 18th century, they had one-room schoolhouses. All the grades were in together. The second reason is because it's my family. Amen. Now, if you want to know what what went wrong with public education in America, when we left off that type of curriculum, when the Supreme Court kid got out of schools 50 years ago, 50 years ago, by the way, if you're not old enough to remember this, watch the Andy Griffith show You get an idea of what uh, public schools were like. The big problems in public education as far as discipline 50 years ago included running in the halls and maybe talking in the back of the classroom. Today in public schools, we witness sexual assault, rape, murder, mass murder, stealing, bullying, all manner of wickedness in our public education system. Why? Because when you remove the prince of peace from the classroom, he is replaced with the prince of darkness. And we now have an education system filled with secular humanism, evolutionism, and all manner of wickedness in in the instruction. And they're not teaching morality anymore, so the kids are left to decide for themselves what they think is right or wrong. We'll talk more about that in a little while. Now, looking at the law in the colonies, we already mentioned that the Bible and English common law formed the foundation of colonial America's laws. This is reflected in the specific laws they had. Let's look at a couple. First of all, the Sabbath laws. Now, I can remember as a little boy, tiny, tiny guy in the 1970s, that stores were still closed on Sundays. Anybody remember that? Uh, we call In New England, we call those the blue laws. And those are actually a remnant of these colonial Sabbath laws. So what was the punishment for violating these Sabbath laws in the colonies? Well, punishments range from losing provisions for a week to a public whipping to the death penalty. Blasphemy laws. Punishments range from fines and imprisonment to the death penalty. So these laws show that the colonists took Christianity and the Bible very seriously. Now looking at religion. All the colonies had, to some extent or other, Christian charters, constitutions, requirements that only Christians hold office. Over time, the common beliefs, Christian beliefs they all shared, resulted in a unity among the colonies. Now, if you study colonial American history, you'll see that the 13 colonies were like 13 distinct separate countries almost. There was often conflict. Uh, But decades before the first shot was fired at Lexington and Concord, you had a group of men in the pulpits of America. We call them the Black Robe Regiment or the Black Robe Brigade who, preaching from God's word, preached against political tyranny, they, they, they preached against tyranny in government, and they promoted government God's way. And by, by all these preachers doing this, they helped bring a unity in the colonies, so by the time of the Revolutionary War, we were one nation under God, and that made the revolution possible. In colonial America, virtually all the people were Christians, if not in terms of their personal salvation, then in terms of their habits, their customs, and so forth. 20th century theologian Francis Schaeffer referred to this as the Christian consensus. In other words, even those who were not truly born again, at least in public, they acted like it. And I would argue as you study American history that we had this Christian consensus all the way up until the early 1960s. And then when our government started systematically removing God from our institutions, that's when everything went south fairly rapidly. There was a time when you could go to school. uh, You were going to go deer hunting after school, so you'd leave your your loaded 30-30 rifle in the gun rack of the window of your truck with the door unlocked. Nowadays, if if a kid eats a Pop-Tart and makes it in the shape of a gun, they suspend him from school. Uh, Amazing. We're going to talk about how we got from one point to the other, but that's the contrast. So under America's Christian foundations, we looked at Colonial America. Now we look at the Founding Fathers. Generally, those who contributed to our nation's foundational documents are considered Founding Fathers. When we, think, we think of the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, the latter of which, by the way, mandated by law that schools would be established for the teaching of the Christian religion. Okay? But before we get on to more serious stuff, it's time for a few founding father jokes with Jeremy and his colonial gray squirrel. Now, if you were almost 200 years old, you'd have some gray hairs as well. Do you want to hear a joke? Okay, sure. What did King George think of the colonists? I don't know, what? They were revolting. (laughs) What's the difference between George Washington and a duck? Hmm, I'm not sure what. One had a bell on his face, the other had his face on a (laughs) bill. What was the colonists' favorite kind of tea? I don't know, what? Liberty. why did they bury george washington on a rocky hillside hmm. i have no idea why because he was dead <laughs> thank you jeremy <laughs> now looking at the men behind the declaration of independence upwards of 90 percent of the signers of the declaration of independence belonged to a Christian denomination at a time when those denominations still taught salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. Looking at the men behind the Constitution, in all there were 55 delegates at one time or another to the Constitutional Convention, and of those 55 delegates, nearly 100% subscribed to the belief that Jesus Christ is the Savior of mankind. Now we're going to look at some quotes from the Founding Fathers themselves. The first is John Adams. Now John Adams was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, a judge, a diplomat, of course, uh, the second president of the United States and one of two signers of the Bill of Rights. Listen to this quote from our second president. The general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. I will avow that I then believed and now believe that those general principles were as eternal and immutable as the existence and attributes of God. Thank you, Joseph. So a clear uh, presentation from our second president that America was founded on the, on the, on the principles of Christianity. Now, looking at John Dickinson, John Dickinson was the signer of the Constitution, governor of Delaware, governor of Pennsylvania, and a general during the Revolutionary War. Listen to this very important quote from John Dickinson. Governments could give get the righteous answer to happiness. We claim them from a higher source, from the king of kings and lord of all the earth. Very good, Germany. Okay, so listen, one of our founding fathers saying? very explicitly that our rights don't come from government, our rights come from Jesus Christ. Can you imagine our president, the one we have now saying that today? I seem to have invoked some laughter there for some reason. Now there are scores of such quotes in the Founding Fathers. We could literally spend hours on this. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't have the time. Under America's Christian Foundations, we looked at the the, uh, Colonial America and the Founding Fathers. Now we'll look at the Constitution. Christian principles greatly influenced the Constitution in many ways, and when we consider the theological beliefs held by the founders, it's not surprising. Looking at the separation of powers, this is based from Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? Does that verse sound like we can trust anyone to rule over us? Absolutely not. Now, the founders' desire to separate Czech check government and power was rooted in the principle of Jeremiah 17:9, As David Barton, modern Christian historian says, This verse encapsulated a prominent theological teaching among Puritans, Calvinists, and most other Christian movements and denominations. It was ingenious of our founding fathers to come up with the the, uh, uh, three branches of government. Why? Because they believed in the biblical concept that man is a sinner. And as a sinner, he would crave power. And that's what the problem was, wasn't it? They had just broken away from a tyrant, King George III, who was... was, uh, Read the Declaration of Independence, all the list of 57 rights that were violated by the King of England. So they were very much concerned with this. So, so their solution was ingenious. They actually used the sin nature of man to help protect their rights. How? Well, we have an executive branch, a legislative branch, and a judicial branch. Now, because of the separation, co-equal branches, if any one branch began to usurp the power of the others, those in the other branches who would be jealous of their own power would step up and say, no, 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 you can't do that. That belongs to us. Pretty ingenious when you think about it. And it worked pretty good until about eight years ago. Now we have an executive who thinks he's a monarch, a legislative branch who are just cowardly and not willing to stand up to their responsibilities, and a judicial branch that thinks it's another uh, uh, legislative branch. So we have immoral men in government today who will not stick to the Constitution. And so we have all manner of issues with that. So in America's Christian foundations, we looked that colonial America, the founding fathers, and the, and the Constitution. So what was the result of these Christian foundations of America? We had a Christian nation blessed by God. Liberty in Christ led to great productivity. You realize in less than 50 years, the United States surpassed Great Britain as the industrial giant of the world? That was unheard of in history. Progressively higher standards of living. Even the poorest Americans, even from the beginning, have been far better off than the poor around the world throughout history. Tremendous opportunity for every individual. Several of our uh, presidents were born in poverty. World power status in record time, and the most important of all, great contributions to world missions. Do you know the United States has done more to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ than any other nation on the planet? Utterly amazing. So we've completed our first concept, America's Christian Foundations and please understand we haven't scratched the surface. Some of these concepts I could literally teach a college level semester class on. Now, in the foyer we have our table set up and we have a little glass jar with a uh, some sign up sheets. Uh put your name, email address and the church name on that, fold that up, put it in the glass jar. What we'll do is we'll we'll add you to our email newsletter. Every month, first week of the month, we send out our newsletter sharing about what God's been doing through our work. And also we take information from these messages with with references, and we put those in the newsletter. So you can build a mini-library with documentation to share with lost family and friends. So please be, fr- be sure to do that afterwards. And take one of our prayer cards, please, and pray for us. And my wife has some potholders out there if you're interested in that. Now on to our second concept, why America's in danger today. John Adams said, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. In other words, when most, Christian, well, most Americans were Christian, or at least they were living like Christians in the, in the culture we had, then the liberty we had in Christ led to that, that list of things I just shared with you, the great productivity and, all, and so on, uh, uh, incredible amounts of opportunity. But when America turned its back on God, on Christ, then that liberty became license to sin. So what happened is actually pretty remarkable. You see, our adversary, the devil, actually used God's blessings of liberty and turned it against us. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Ro- uh, Revelation chapter three, we're look at verses uh, 14 to 20, Revelation chapter three. We're going to look from the Word of God at something that will parallel the church in America today. Revelation 314 through 20, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou were cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with so that thou mayest see. As many as I love I chasten and rebuke or excuse me, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door I will come into him and will sup with him, and he with me. Ladies and gentlemen, this passage of Scripture describes a typical church in America today. See, as our wealth has increased, our love for God and desire to do his work has decreased. Like the Church of Laodicea and American churches today, God is on the outside knocking to get back in. America is proof that if God gives men a nation founded upon his book and fills the land with godly Christians at the nation's beginning and gives them the most abundant natural resources on the planet, that even then, apart from Christ, such a great nation as that will fall into ruin and decay. If you're older than 30 years, I would would submit to you that in your lifetime, you have witnessed the the, the ruin of America, the decay of America. When I was was a young man in high school in the 80s, I never thought I would see the day when America is is what it is today. Just utterly uh, amazing. And I feel very sorry for young people who have seen nothing but this. They do not understand what great freedoms and and what great uh, opportunity we once had. But America is a nation in decline. America is a nation in decline. Now, I want to connect some dots for you. We've we've learned about America's Christian heritage. You read the news. You know what's going on today. How did we get from point A to point B? I've, I've already hinted at some things, but I want to go into some specific details now. Now, in my hand, I hold the Bible, the Word of God. And this is our source for absolute truth. This is important stuff, absolute truth. What is absolute truth? It's truth that's absolutely true. So That's a no-brainer. It's also a poor definition, teacher. You should know better. Well, you're not supposed to use the word in the definitions. So let me try again, okay? Absolute truth is truth that it never changes, okay? It never changes. It's always the same, all right? Uh, it's a concept that we learn from the Word of God. Now, in the early 1960s, when the Supreme Court kicked God's Word out of schools, then how are we gonna teach the kids about absolute truth? You see? And so we stopped doing that. Instead, they introduced what we call relative truth. Relative truth. Now relative truth is truth that exists only in the minds of men, therefore it's subject to change. Can you imagine truth changing? But that's what relative truth is. And relativism has has infiltrated every aspect of American culture. It's impacted our laws, our politics, our education system. Uh, Of course, the morality leads to to moral relativism where there are no absolutes. Uh, So we have a nation that was founded on God's word, absolute truths. We had a bedrock foundation for our laws and our systems, our economy. And now we're living in a nation where relativism rules the day. Let me explain why that is a very dangerous situation for us to be in. Let's just look at one example from our legal system. Okay, Now, about 15 years ago in California there was a man named Scott Peterson who murdered his pregnant wife Lacey and their unborn son Connor. Anybody remember that? I was a teacher in the Bay Area at that time. Actually, it was local news. Now to the credit of the state of California, they, they prosecuted Mr. Peterson for a double homicide for killing his wife and unborn child. But at the same time the state of California was prosecuting Mr. Peterson for a double homicide for murdering his wife and unborn child, they were also advocating and funding abortion. So, wait a minute California, I got a question for you. Is that entity in the mother's womb a blob of tissue to be discarded at the mother's whim and with the legal assistance of a physician? Or is that entity a human being where if you kill him or her, you've committed murder? Which is it, California? It can't be both, can it? See, those of us who acknowledge absolute truth see the clear contradiction, but those who accept relative truth ignore contradictions because truth, after all, is what we say it is. Early 1960s, early 1960s, Okay, uh, a teenage girl goes up to her unsaved parents, unsaved now, and says, Mom and Dad, I'm, I'm going to move in with my boyfriend. What's the reaction of the unsaved mom and dad? I can't believe this. By the mid-1970s, the IRS had codified fornication in the legal system. In the 1980s, when I was in high school, homosexuality was something that the guys joked about. Picked on each other, called each other's names. It was was, was something to be mocked. By the late 90s, homosexuality was the in thing. In the 1990s, if you mentioned gay marriage to somebody, they would have scratched their head and said, what are you talking about? But today, gay marriage is the law of the land. What changed, ladies and gentlemen? Did God's word, did absolute truth change? Or did the culture embrace relativism? and invent their own truth. This is a very very dangerous thing. In fact, relativism underpins some of the most heinous philosophies known to man. Communism is born from relativism. Nazism was born from relativism. And by the way, evolution and all these other secular ideas feed right in with that because With relativism, you don't need God. We are the final arbiters of truth. And therefore, whatever we say is true becomes truth. The culture, the society decides. You know, Hermann Goering, Hitler's Luftwaffe commander, made this statement. If the Fuhrer declares that two times two is five, then two times two is five. What else did the Fuhrer declare? That the Jews were not really human beings? Christians and Jews rounded up, killed, upwards of 12 million. Communism, philosophy that says the collective is what matters, the group. Individuals don't matter. You know individuals matter to God? Do You know individualism is a concept from God's word, absolute truth, and collectivism is a concept straight from the pits of hell? Collectivism says, you as an individual don't matter. In fact, you're you're, you're disposable. We don't need you. The group is all that matters. So when you work hard and earn your money, we're going to take it. The elites who run society, we're going to take your money and redistribute it as we see fit. Communism, the government owns everything. Socialism is a little less evil, nearly as bad. They'll let you have some things. But by and large, it's a collective. Everything is owed to the collective. Obamacare, ring a bell? Our economy is a Marxist economy. Communism and socialism come from Marxism, Karl Marx, 19th century, another ism. And these philosophies have infiltrated American economics to the point now where government regulation and taxation are so intense, just go try to start a business. And and my my response to you would be good luck with that. What are we getting at? Communism, which was was born from relativism, stay with me now, over 100 million people were murdered by communist governments in the 20th century. And did you hear what I said earlier? Our government now embraces the philosophy of relativism. And we already see inroads of socialism and communism in our society. We already see secular humanism ruling the schools. We see evolution being taught and God's word being ridiculed. Everywhere we turn, Satan is attacked on these fronts. And so we're left with an America that is riddled with holes and ready to crumble at any time. And let me just say this. If we as American Christians do not turn things around in this nation... The path we are on leads to the same path it did in the early, mid-20th century. Concentration camps and mass murder. See, that's crazy. I don't believe that. Study Study the word of God and study history. I challenge you to prove me wrong. If we don't get this nation back on God's word and away from relativism, we are destined for the same course. It's basic logic, ladies and gentlemen. If A, then B. It's a causal relationship. Now, we see people looking to politics and so many things, let me tell you something, there's only one answer for America. We're gonna talk about that next. So we looked at America's Christian foundations, why America's in danger now, how to see revival in 21st century America. Unfortunately, Christians in America wanna shift the blame for our sorry state of affairs away from themselves and their lack of commitment to Christ. Christians blame corrupt politicians, filthy Hollywood productions, and sexual perverts for our nation's problems. In addition, Christians look to Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Bill O'Reilly, Glenn Beck, and others for the hope of turning America around, and none of these men are even saved. Show me in God's word where he uses unbelievers to lead his people anywheres. Christians look to politicians like Michelle Bachman, Sarah Palin, and others as though the problem in America is a political one. People say, if we could just get Barack Obama out of the White House, everything would be okay. And my response to that is, really? Wasn't the President before Obama a born-again Christian? And didn't Reagan, didn't he hold office just a few decades ago? No, the answer is not political, folks. Christians look to the Tea Party and other reform groups as though the problem with America is an economic one. I taught economics for many years. I wrote a senior level economics course. Let me share something with you. This may be a shock. The economy in the United States is a house of cards. The government is lying to you about the unemployment rate. They're lying to you about the numbers. They're they're investing money. The government is is creating money out of thin air. That's called inflation, which results in rising prices because the more money in circulation, the less it's worth. Prices have to come up to keep up with the devaluation of the money system. So we're seeing our economy being manipulated by our government. The fact is, the wicked in America are simply behaving the way wicked people behave. The reason they made such inroads over these last several decades is because Christians haven't been behaving the way we're supposed to behave. The answer to America's problems is found in 2 Chronicles 7.14. The Word of God says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sins, will heal their land. See, God did not hold the wicked heathen responsible for the awful state of things in ancient Israel. He held his people accountable for becoming like them. Now I want to go over with you quickly two key areas where most American Christians have not been faithful to the Lord. Two key areas. Now let me say before I get into this real quick, we go to, we go to churches all over the United States and see a lot of good people. Uh, and each church has its own little culture, right? Right? what people are supposed to wear and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you could have a church where everyone dresses the way they're supposed to dress. You can have a church where everyone's there every time the doors are open. You can have a church where everyone ties and everybody gives the missions. Okay, you can have a church with all those good things going on. But let me tell you something. You could do all those things and be lost. What I'm saying is this. God is not looking for outward Expressions so much as he's looking for a heart attitude. Is your, let me ask you a question, is your heart fully yielded to Jesus Christ tonight? If the Lord said to you, I want you to sell your house and go to the mission field, would you go, Yes, sir? If God told you, give thousands of dollars to this missions project the church is working on, would you say, Yes, sir? Is there any area in your life where you are not yielded to God? See, God is looking for yielded hearts so that he can empower you and live the Christian life through you rather than looking for robots who are just going to go jumping through the hoops. As I said, a lost person can do that. God is looking for obedient, yielded hearts. And one of the reasons churches are so powerless sometimes is because individual Christians are jumping through the hoops. They're, they're just going through the motions of Christianity, whatever the culture in their church says, just going through the motions. But their heart's not really yielded to Christ. Without a yielded heart, God can't empower you. And we have Christians without power, so we have churches without power. And so we're not impacting our communities or our nation for Jesus Christ. So God is calling on American Christians to yield themselves fully to him. I told you earlier that we challenged people to do what their founding fathers did, pledge their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor for Jesus Christ. Why was America a great nation? Because that's what our founding fathers did. And you know, by the way, Donald Trump is not going to make America great again. Sorry. Okay. Only one man made America great, the Lord Jesus Christ. And only Jesus Christ can make America great again. Now, those two key areas where most American Christians have not been faithful. Number one, stewardship. Our focus is on the temporal, not the eternal. We're laying up treasures on earth rather than in heaven. How much do you spend on things you do not really need? American Christians spend money on houses that are bigger than we need, cars that are more luxurious than we need, more cars than we need, and far more recreation-related activities and items than we can biblically justify. In your mind's eye right now, check your closets, your basements, your attics, your garages, your, your storage sheds for how much wealth you have tied up in things you don't ever use and don't really need. Do you realize every penny invested in that is God's money? What more can we do to see people at home and around the world saved if the money spent by all of us on those unimportant, unnecessary things was invested in home and foreign missions? The Southern Baptist Convention is recalling one-sixth of their foreign missionaries due to a lack of funding. I would argue that if American Christians were faithful and put Christ first, we could send out six times as many missionaries if we really wanted to. Ladies and gentlemen, souls, eternal souls are in the balance. Oh, you're fat and happy. You're saved. You're in church. I'm okay. What about those around the world who have not heard? You know, when I when I witness in fairs in America, I run into people who have never heard the gospel. Two generations of kids now have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ under our own noses. Based upon how we spent our wealth during our lifetime, God will tell us one of two things when we appear before him. We're either going to hear this from Matthew 25, 21. His Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Or we're going to hear this from Luke twelve twenty. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? I sincerely fear that most American Christians are going to hear the passage from Luke twelve twenty. Because while we've been busy chasing the American dream, Instead of living the Great Commission, our culture, our society has been crumbling around us. Be honest with yourself. What would he say? What would God say to you if you stood before him tonight regarding your stewardship of all he's entrusted you with? I heard one preacher say, I've never seen a hearse towing a U haul trailer. I said that in church once. A guy emailed me a picture of a hearse with a U haul trailer on it. Uh, I suspect he was helping somebody move and being a little eccentric about it. I don't think that guy was taking anything with him. Let me summarize how God feels with, about material possessions with a little little fictitious story. And by the way, I think this—I I, I preach on stewardship. We have a stewardship ministry. I think this little little story exemplifies better than any sermon I've ever heard God's heart in terms of material possessions. So listen to this: A man died and went to heaven. And he was being given a tour of all the beautiful mansions up in heaven. As his tour guide took him around, he was amazed at the splendor and the beauty of these big mansions, beautiful mansions. And at the end of the the tour, they rode up to a little wooden shack. And the tour guide said, "The, the tour is over. Here's your mansion for eternity. And he pointed to the little wooden shack. Now, the guy was a bit disappointed, of course. He said, wait a minute. He said, you show me all these beautiful mansions, grand mansions at the end of the tour. You tell me this little wooden shack is my mansion for eternity. What's up with that? And the tour guide replied, I'm sorry, sir, but it's the best we could do with what you sent ahead. See, Jesus said, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where rust and moth doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither rust nor moth doth corrupt. And where thieves do not break through and steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Take a look at your checkbook for the last year. Who have you been serving? Are you chasing the American dream? Or are you laying up treasure in heaven as you fulfill the Great Commission? A second area where modern American Christians are unfaithful is soul winning. Soul winning. Our number one job as Christians is to lead others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. In fact, the last thing the Lord said before he went to heaven, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but ye shall receive power. By the way, ye is you, all you guys. But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and in the uttermost parts of the earth. Yet despite this clear command, did you know that 98% of Christians have never led another soul to Christ? of Christians have never led another soul to Christ. If you owned a business and 98% of your employees were not doing their job, how long would you stay in business? See, this is proof that the church Christ established is of supernatural origins. Only God could start something and have it last 2,000 years with such lousy employees. I want to challenge you tonight to become one of the two percenters. And I'm going to share with you how simple it is to lead a soul to Christ. Now, if you're a born-again Christian, that is, you're saved, you have Christ as your Savior, you're you're a Christian, what the Bible calls a Christian, that, that second birth, spiritual birth. If you're a Christian tonight, I want you to please take down some notes so you can have a reference so that you can lead others to Jesus Christ. Now listen, if you have never trusted Christ as your personal Savior, then this is even more important for you because I'm going to share with you right now how you can be 100% certain you can have a home in heaven. And folks, this is the best part of the message tonight. Listen, the gospel in its purest form, how to be saved. I hope that excites you tonight. If it doesn't, I'm going to pray the Holy Spirit will light a fire unto you so you can get excited. Amen. Let's start with verse number 1, Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23. The Bible says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned. We're all sinners. Now, in today's relativistic society, we need to make sure we define our terms. What is sin? The Bible teaches us what sin is. It's a transgression against God's law. Now, it could be a sin of omission or a sin of commission. In other words, God says to us, Don't do this. And what do we do? We do it. Or God says, I want you to do this. And what do we do? We don't do it, right? The Bible says all have sinned. We're all sinners. Now, the typical person in America today would be like, so what's the big deal, man? Everybody's doing it. That takes us to our second verse, Romans 6.23. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin. Again, let's define our terms. What is a wage? It's a paycheck, something you earn. Okay? How many of you in here have jobs or have had jobs at some point in your life? Okay? Very good. Okay? We have some Obama supporters in here, apparently. <laughs> wages. You go to work this week, you work hard. At the end of the week, you go up to your boss and you say, Boss, I'm here to get my wages. Your boss looks you in the eye and he says, Well, you know what, Jim? You did a great job this week. You really did but I'm just not going to pay you for it. No, this week was on you. Let me ask you a question. Is that justice? No, because you've earned them. You've earned the wages, right? Well, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. So because you're a sinner, you've earned something. You've earned death. Let's define death. Because we think of death, we think of these cop shows on TV, CSI and all this stuff with you know, dead bodies and stuff. That's not what the Bible is talking about when, it talks about when the Bible talks about death. In the Bible, the concept of death means separation. Separation. So a man's walking down the street and he drops dead of a heart attack, his soul and spirit separate from his body. That's physical death. And by the way, we're all going to die that physical death someday, unless the Lord returns for the rapture. So that's physical death. But Romans 6.23 is not talking about physical death, folks. Romans 6.23 is talking about spiritual death. Eternal separation from God forever in a place called hell. And today there are even some Christians who don't believe in a literal hell. Do you know Jesus Christ spoke more about hell than he did heaven? Because he doesn't want you to go there. Let me tell you a couple things about hell. Number one, hell is a place of fire and torment. The Lord talked about that in several places where the flame is never quenched and the worm of the soul dieth not. Well, why would a loving God send somebody to a fire, a a, a fiery hell? Why would a loving God do that? Well, number one, God doesn't send you. You choose to go. Can you imagine that? You choose to go. Second of all, what is the purpose of fire? If you're a miner and you're you're extracting iron ore or silver ore or or gold out of the ground and you want to purify it, what do you apply to it? Fire, the flame. If there's water there and it's dirty from a pond but you have to drink it, what do you do to it? You apply fire. See, fire purifies. Fire purifies. The only problem is is if you want to purify yourself from your own sins in hell, you know how long you'll be there? eternity, forever. So the fire of hell makes perfect sense. And hell is also a place of darkness. It's a place of darkness. You know, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. In the book of Revelation, we learn that in heaven, who is the light? The Lamb, amen? Jesus, the Lamb is the light. Now, Christ's presence will not be manifest in hell. And if the light is in heaven, it's going to be dark in hell. Have you ever been in a power outage and the, and the lights go out suddenly? You're in pitch black. You ever have that happen? You can't even see your hand in front of your face. What's the first emotion that comes over you? Panic, fear. What's the first thing you want to see? Light. Imagine being a place of fire and torment and darkness. Well, wait a minute, brother. That's a contradiction. How can it be dark if there's fire? Well, scientists have concluded that the color of the hottest fire that could possibly burn is black. Think of the black holes in outer space. But the worst part of hell is not the fire, is not the darkness. The worst part of hell is this. For the first time in your existence, you will be completely and utterly separated from the presence of Almighty God. See, God is... God is spirit, and he's omnipresent. He's everywhere present. All all over the earth, God's presence is felt. We don't always understand or even know that we feel it. Let me say this. Even the most evil, wicked person who's ever lived has benefited from the presence of Almighty God while alive on this earth. There's a certain peace and security that comes just by being alive in God's presence. But when you die in your sins and go to hell, Then you are completely and utterly separated from god's presence and so for the first time in your existence you will feel the absence of god imagine the most horrific sad dark miserable day of your life and that is what hell would be like in fact that would seem like paradise compared to hell hell is a real place it's a horrible place and you do not want to go and if you're a christian You ought to have a burden in your heart so that those you love and even strangers, you do not want them to go there. You know, there was a bridge that was out and you knew it and there was a car speeding towards that bridge. Would you not stand up in the road and jump up and down and yell, Stop, stop, the bridge is out. Don't go, don't go, you'll perish. Yet Christians who claim to believe all the Bible, claim to believe in the hell of the Bible, don't even lift a finger for their lost friends and relatives and neighbors who are perishing and going to hell. And have you been reading the news? It's getting to the point now that you don't know where some nut with a gun in the name of Allah or, or whatever is going to just murder a bunch of people. It happens everywhere now. It happens in churches. It happens in malls. And we never know when it's going to happen. Why? It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. But fortunately, there's another part of that verse, and it goes like this. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift of God. Let's define our terms. What is a gift? Do you have to pay for a gift? Listen, ladies, if your husband gets you an anniversary present, and then two days later you get a bill in the mail with your name on it. Now, guys, don't get any ideas. I see the light bulb is going on. A gift is free. What is that gift? Eternal life. That's, that's God talking about a home with Him in heaven forever. How? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So God is a free gift. He wants you to have. What is it? Eternity in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now if I give you a gift to put it on the altar, but you don't come and take it, will it do you any good? Not at all. So God is offering to you the gift of eternal life, but you've got to receive it. You've got to take it. Well, how do I do that? Romans 10, 9 and 10. Romans 10, 9 and 10. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. See, the moment you trust that Jesus Christ is God the Son, he became a man, and he died on the cross and paid your sin debt, the moment you believe that and accept it by faith in a personal way? The Bible says that your spirit, which is dead in trespasses and sins, is quickened. It's made alive. That's why we call it being born again. You were born once as a little baby. But God wants you to have a spiritual birth. You've got to have a spiritual birth to be saved. Well, how does that work? 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For he that's God the Father made him God the Son. For he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What does that mean? When the moment you believe in Christ as your Savior, God takes your sins, nails them to the cross with Christ, and takes Christ's righteousness and holiness and places it on you. That's called an imputed righteousness. It means you're not righteous in and of yourself, but by virtue of a legal declaration where Christ has satisfied your sin debt, Christ has taken your punishment, God declares Him guilty, punished Him on the cross, and declares you righteous. It's an act that occurs in a moment of time when by faith you trust. Is that what I'm saying from the Word of God here, right? It's in the Bible. When you trust that this is true, and apply it in a personal way to yourself, that moment in time is when you are born again. John 1, 12 says, But as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on his name. And people will object, Well, wait a minute. Surely I must have to do something. I've got to keep the Ten Commandments, or go to church, or get baptized, or keep sacraments. Surely I must have to do something. And the answer to that question is no. Write this down, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. There's that word again. Not of works, lest any man should boast. If you could do anything to merit God's salvation, you could brag about it. But there'll be no bragging in heaven save on the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, for those of you who are religious, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 64, verse 6, the Lord says that your righteousnesses, that is your good works, your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. God calls our good works filthy rags. In the Old Testament, there are two types of filthy rags: a woman's menstrual cloths and the rags used to wrap a leper's decaying skin. Imagine you got a brand new carpet in your house, brand new carpet, and you invite your friend over, come on over see my new carpet. And your friend brings her poodle Fifi. And Fifi does a number all over your brand new carpet. And you're you're horrified. Your friend says, Ah, not to worry, I have a bushel basket full of used Old Testament rags. I'll sprinkle those over Fifi's stain. Would that satisfy you? Romans 10:3 says that those going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. See, apart from Jesus Christ, there's no way you can get to heaven. It's strictly by God's grace. I'll illustrate that that, and we'll close in just a few moments. There was a woman who stood before a judge one day and she was guilty of the crime and the judge looked at her sternly and said, Young lady, I told you if I ever saw you in my court, I would throw the book at you. Because you're guilty of this crime... It's a one-year prison sentence or a $10,000 fine. I will let you choose. This young girl, about 18 years old, dropped to her knees, crying and begging and pleading, please, Your Honor, I don't have the money. Please, I don't want to go to prison. Please. And the judge looked at her sternly and said, bailiff, take her away. They grabbed that girl, kicking and screaming, throw her in the prison cell, locked the door and walked away. Before I finish that story, let me ask you a question. Was that a just judge or an unjust judge? He was just was she not guilty and did the law not demand a year in prison or a $10,000 fine he was a just judge let me tell you something folks God Almighty is a just and holy God the Bible says the soul that sinneth it shall die if you die in your sins apart from Jesus Christ God the holy God the just God will condemn you to hell not because he wants to but because he is a just God Now back to our story. At the end of the day, when the judge was done work, he took off his black robe, he hung it in his chamber, and on his way out of the courthouse, he stopped past the clerk's office, took out his personal checkbook, and wrote a check for $10,000. He handed it to the clerk and said, bring me the girl. They went to the prison cell and unlocked the door, and the bailiff declared, good news, good news, you're free, you're free. Someone has paid your debt for you. You're free. The girl ran up to the judge, put her arms around the judge's neck and kissed him and said, thank you, Daddy, I love you. Because he was a just judge, he had to condemn her. But because he loved her, he paid her debt himself. See, the Bible says that God so loved the world, that's you, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. But have everlasting life for god sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved you see tonight you owe a debt you cannot pay so god paid a debt that he did not owe and all you have to do if you've never accepted christ before tonight all you have to do is by faith receive him when i share this with people at of fair i say you can pray a prayer like this if you'd like to ask jesus to save you you can pray lord i know that i'm a sinner and i cannot save myself I understand that I know my good works can't save me and I know I deserve hell but I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God he became a man lived a perfect life and died on the cross shedding his blood to pay my sin debt Lord I believe he was buried and rose again the third day in fulfillment of the scriptures and proving he is God and what he said is true and Lord I accept that now as payment in full for my sins forgive me my sins come into my life and save me in Jesus name now I always tell people that prayer cannot save anybody. It's your personal faith that saves you. But if that prayer expresses the way you feel right now, I'll lead you in that prayer so you can be saved right now trusting in Jesus. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around, if you have never trusted Jesus as your Savior, Then pray this prayer if you feel God's spirit knocking on your heart's door. Don't resist the Holy Spirit. You may not get another chance. If you'd like to pray and ask God to save you, you can pray with me now. Pray with me now. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I deserve hell. And I know nothing I do can save me. I believe Jesus Christ is God the Son. I believe he became a man. He lived a perfect life with no sin. I believe he died on the cross and shed his blood to pay my sin debt in full. I believe he was buried. I believe he rose again the third day, proving he is God, and what he said is true. Lord, I accept that now as payment for my sin debt. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life and save me now. In Jesus' name, amen. With nobody looking around, please continue to bow your head and close your eyes just for a moment. If you just prayed that prayer, would you please slip up your right hand? I want to thank God for you and say a quick prayer for you. Anybody in here? Anybody pray? Did anybody pray and receive Christ? Slip up your right hand. Don't be embarrassed. Anybody at all? Anybody at all? Heavenly Father, by the testimony of the hands, uh, the folks in this room are saved. But if there is anybody here who is not saved, I pray before they leave here tonight, Lord, they will receive you as their Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, folks. Now we're going to close. Appreciate your patience. Today we examined three very important concepts. We looked at America's Christian foundations, why America is in danger, and how to see revival in the 21st century. Now it's essential we understand these things. If we're ever going to see America return to our Christian heritage, and see God's hand of blessing restored. God's hand of judgment is upon our nation, folks. We want his hand of blessing to come back. Today, the future of America lies with us. If we remain stubborn, then we can expect to see more of the same. Wicked politicians who hate America's Christian heritage and try and cover it up, and who hate Christians. They'll pass more and more laws that restrict our rights as Christians and take away our freedoms as Americans. God has given us a precious gift tonight. The freedom to choose we can choose between serving him or serving our flesh our founding fathers made america a great nation because they chose to serve and sacrifice for him we too can see america return to her greatness and will serve christ with our whole hearts from now on one day our grandchildren and great-grandchildren will look back at our generation will they give thanks to god because we turned america back around and restored god's blessings upon our nation or will they curse us as the last generation to enjoy freedom the generation that let freedom slip away during the invitation if you've never been born again i would encourage you to come if you are a christian and you know you've not been a faithful soul winner and you know you could do better with stewardship i would encourage you to come maybe god's burden your heart for somebody in your family somebody you know somebody you know that needs to be saved maybe you want to just come up here and pray for them whatever god has laid on. Your